Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Uh, so I'm trying to start these podcasts with a little bit of an introduction, so here goes. Um, this particular episode is with Niaga Leonard. He's the project director of the Cat Balanger Conservation Project, which is home to the second most endangered primate in the world. You guessed it, the Cat Balanger. Um, this podcast is a little bit longer than most. It's probably about an hour, but seeing as how there's really only 60 or so of these Cat Balangers left in the world, think about it that way, it's about a minute per Langer, um, and they're definitely worth that, if not much, much more. Um, you will notice at some point, uh, well, maybe a couple points that the audio drops out a little bit. That's just because we're recording on Skype, um, and he is on site in Vietnam, and my internet is not much better. Uh, finally, and this is true with all of the podcasts, but especially with this one, I think, check out the photos in the blog. Uh, Niaga has done a great job of capturing these beautiful creatures, and I think it would do them justice for everyone to take a look and see exactly what, um, you know, these amazing creatures look like. So, as always, thank you very much. Uh, if you would, be so kind as to rate, review, and subscribe. That's a huge help. Um, feel free to leave comments or just reach out to me through the blog itself. Uh, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I sure did. And um, yeah, take it easy. All right. I'm here with Niaga Leonard. He's the project director of the Kat Ba Langer Conservation Project in the greater Ha Long Bay area in Vietnam. Um, this area is home to the second most endangered primate in the world and the most endangered in Vietnam. Uh, the current count is about 60 individuals. Um, 63, right? 63? Yeah. Okay. Great. That's that's better than I was expecting. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, hopping on the call with me. Absolutely, my pleasure. This is uh, one of the species that people don't really know a lot about, despite its status as being one of the most endangered primates in the world. And it's always a good, always a nice opportunity to talk to people about both the species and also the area, because a lot of the issues you face here with this particular species are not limited to the species alone. They're affecting all the biodiversity in this area, and then around the world, we're facing very similar challenges, almost no matter where you go. So it's always nice to be able to use one area as a microcosm of a much larger situation, and then get people to hopefully think more carefully about what they're doing, uh, explore their own areas, their own backyards, their own home countries, see how they can take part in this larger picture of both the conservation portion of things, and also better understanding their own world and their own position in the world as well. Um, the Cat Balanger in the 1960s, we think the population was about 2,500 to 2,700 animals. Yeah. And when the first survey was done in 1999, the numbers had dropped to somewhere around 100 to 130. I think that was actually an overestimation based on the way the survey was done, but that's the number they came up with. Hmm. Our project started the next year, and our count that year had 53 or so animals, which I know is an overestimation. And our low point was in 2003 with about 40 animals, and it's been rising up since then. But 
we we thought we had the hunting under control from about 2006 until now, but in 2015 we lost an entire group of animals and it dropped the population quite a bit. Uh, we obviously we didn't see the people hunting them, but one group completely disappeared and we found an injured animal much much later on. And it was actually we found it dead, but it healed up from injuries and injuries looked like it had been received at around the same time the group disappeared. What we think happened based on other information I got of people asking questions about what langurs were and where they were sleeping and how much money they could get for langurs. We think that some people from the next province over came over and hunted that group out. Wow. And it's easier to catch a whole group than it is to catch an individual animal oftentimes. You go to where their sleeping sites are and you just get the entire group because they sleep together. Wow. Yeah. Jeez, that's got to be, um, yeah, it's got to be fascinating because it's, you know, I was reading about how difficult they are to even observe let alone yeah. to, you know, hunt and stalk and, and yeah. you know, actually... They're, they're limestone cliff specialists. And this whole area is this karst, this mature karst, this limestone that's heavily eroded away. So it's yeah. vertical towers, cliff faces, things like that. And they move around on that like you and I would walk across the parking lot. They're jumping all over the place, climbing up and down, with no troubles at all. So when you're out there looking for them, you're looking usually at a pretty good distance... Currently, they live on the coast, so you're on a boat, so your boat's moving around as well. Yeah. Sometimes they come down to the water. Most of the time, you're looking much higher up on the cliff faces or in the vegetation. And if they're in the vegetation, you're looking at branches moving or one head that pops up and sticks around, looks around a little bit, or they're moving quickly and jumping around to this thing. So sometimes it's really difficult to get an accurate count for a particular group. We've been doing this for a long time, so I know what the group sizes are, but you always have to double check every time you go out. Right. So there's challenges in Seeing them in the first place, we know they're home rangers, but they use everything in the home range. So you go to the area that you know they are, and you check their sleeping sites, and you check in the areas you know they forage, and you kind of make these rounds until you go, ha, there they are. And then you sit and you watch and you count, and you observe the activity and behavior. And there's the issue of double counting, right? Like some of them, they look pretty similar. The males and the females yeah. look uh, you know, pretty similar to each other, so it's, it's difficult to yeah. tell them apart, right? Yeah. So the... Not only do they look very similar to each other, you could, it's very difficult to tell individuals apart at all. Males and females, if you're watching them move around, there's really only two ways to tell if it's a male or female, if they don't have babies with them, of course. Uh, the females have a white patch of hair between their thighs, and if they've been nursing, they'll have elongated nipples. But other than that, if you just see moving around in the trees or something, or the cliff, you can't really tell until you get a view where you can actually see that patch of fur or if they're sitting still and you can see one of them got all the nipples or something. That, you can't really tell them apart very well. They're usually far enough away that even if there's a distinguishing characteristic, like a mark on an ear or a kink's tail or something, they're moving around. So you still can't say, oh, there is this one particular animal, and you, can, you can't track that one animal very easily. Right. With a photograph, you can sit with a photograph and go, aha, here's a static image. You can tr see individuals that way. The... Other issue with it, the double counting is not so much of an issue if you're being careful in how you do your count. Mm -hmm. So when I'm saying you're moving around, you're not counting every single animal you see moving. You're saying, I see six in my field of view right now. Okay, otherwise it would be around. like a shell game. I, yeah, I see, yeah if, you do, if you play it like a shell game, you're going to be all, all up in your count. Right. So you, you pan off and you say, okay, in my, my window of view, this is what I see right now. And then a few minutes later, you go, okay, what am I seeing right now? And you don't add those together. You say, okay, I saw six over here. Now I saw five. 
Hmm. All right. So right now the count is six. Oh, look, this time I see seven. So the count now is seven. You just go with the so highest you're number. You're doing the minimum that you see at a time. There are times, of course, you see five over here, and then you, you say, oh, there's two over here, and you know there's too good of a distance for them to do your double count. Out. So you do that. So it's a little bit of judgment as well. But in general, you try to avoid doing anything that's going to give you a risk of a miscount or a double count. I feel like that is just one part of the equation of just trying to, to um, track them. What about, you know, obviously you have the the concept of their conservation in general, but what about awareness of them? I mean, they're... That's the most important, that's one of the most yeah. important pieces. No matter where you are in the world, when you're doing conservation, the most important thing is always people. And people who look at conservation kind of from the outside are interested in it. And also one of the problems is the people who are studying it in universities and things, they oftentimes get taught about the animals, the plants, the biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. And the discussion about why we're in the situation we are, why animals are endangered or plants are endangered or what's happening is sort of left a little bit by the wayside in favor of the zoology side and the data analysis side and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The most important thing to remember is that the conservation is about people because the reason we're in the situation we are is because of the activities of people and the behavior of people. Right. So what you're really trying to do is you're trying to get people to change their understanding of their relationship with the environment and to change their behaviors and change their way of thinking. And to do that, you have to have a very strong awareness campaign wherever you are. And how that is done varies a lot in different areas. The, we have education programs in all the schools on the island for younger children. We have had a lot of community meetings and town meetings and things like that. Uh, we have merchandise that we sell to foreigners and things at regular prices, but we sell them to local people at greatly reduced prices, basically just barely above cost, so then they can resell them for a profit. And that then helps tie them a little bit to us and makes them money and also shows that they can make money based off of the animals that are here and things like that. It's a great idea. So little things like that. So we go out and we and there's a little bit of profit we make from those. We then use the funnel back in for things that are free, the posters and stickers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you're going into town and you have food in one of the restaurants or something, you talk to people there and you give them a poster or a sticker and they put that up. And so within this area, within Cat Ba, there's a very, very great awareness of the Cat Ba Langer. Everyone's really proud of them. They like the fact they're here. They don't always understand kind of the, the importance, but they understand that there's this unique, special thing. And everyone yeah. likes to have something special. Yeah. But it, it, it takes a lot of time. It, it takes work. And it takes work not, not just at the local level, but also at the political level. And that's the other piece of all of this, is that you have to have not just a local support and local people interested and engaged, you also have to have the government involved. Because when it comes down to it, no matter where you are, the government is the kind of ultimate arbitrator of what is going to happen, what the laws are, what the regulations are, what the penalties are, if there's rewards behavior, that sort of a thing. People like myself and the project, we're here as guests, as advisors. So we can provide solutions or suggest solutions and suggest courses of action. But when it comes down to it, the government itself is the, the organization that has to take those final steps and make certain things happen. And we can help soften that or encourage that or direct that, but we don't have the ultimate say in what happens. Are you the only organization that directly helps the CATBA um, like on site or are there other organizations yeah, that help you out? The only one, 
We're the only one on site. Uh, obviously, there's a national park here as well. Mm-hmm. There are other organizations that are involved, but they're not. No one is stationed here. We're the only people that are actually based right here. Yeah, right. Uh, IUCN is involved pretty often for things, less because of the Langaris, but because there's a push to make Cat Ba part of the Helang Bay World Heritage Site. And that, of course, involves UNESCO and IUCN as the kind of the organization that does a lot of those inspections and organizes a lot of that sort of a thing. So they're very heavily politically involved, and I'm very heavily involved in those discussions working with, you know, working with IUCN on that, that issue. And obviously, because the Langers are here, that is one of the justifications for making this a World Heritage Site. So there's all these kind of nest, nested pieces there. Um, some of the other organizations here, we've worked a lot with WCS in the past, the Wildlife Conservation Society. They do a lot of uh, uh, human health and wildlife health interaction things. So they're very good when we have an injured animal or dead animal and we need to take samples or things like that. We've had them involved with that sort of a thing so we can help ship samples away for analysis. Um, FFI has been involved on and off in the past as well. That's been a little bit challenging at times because big organizations have their own particular way of going about things, which don't always work very well with what you're doing on the ground there. But it's kind of an ongoing discussion back and forth on how you're going to approach things. Um, there are a lot of other small organizations in Vietnam with people that focus on Langers in their area. So there's a lot of cross-fertilization of ideas and discussions about what the larger policy should be. Um, we've been involved in the national policies as well. We just recently, a bunch of us came together, and in 2017, we finally got past a national-level primate action plan for all of Vietnam, which includes plans for all of the primates. Now, how that goes from being a government-approved action plan to being practiced on the ground in a coordinated manner is still an ongoing discussion. So there's a lot of these different layers that we're working in like that. Mm-hmm. But we're small enough that our primary focus is here, and the other things are sort of when we can reach out and influence those or take part in them, we do. But we're small enough that really our focus really has to be here on the island. Right, and you guys focus, of that focus on the island, much of that is on the Katba Langer itself. Um, but there are other species, you mentioned already 1,500 uh, species just of, you know, flora alone. These areas are topographically really complex. They have all these microhabitats and shaded areas and wet areas and dry areas. The top of some of the rocks here are more akin to a desert versus the bottom, which is definitely a kind of a rainforest jungle area. So it's a huge variation within a very short way. Um, distance. I mean, they're like 200 have, feet tall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And some of them are sheer faces like that, too. Yeah. Some of them are more sloping, and some of them are just straight up in the air. You described it as something out of, like, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it, it's like Avatar kind of thing. But we have a number of endemic plants that are endemic to both Katba and the greater Halong Bay area. Uh, there are of vertebrate, There's the Katba Langer is the largest endemic vertebrate. We also have a uh, a leopard gecko, a particular species of gecko that's only found on Kappa Island. There's also possibly a skink that is only found on Kappa Island, a little burrowing lizard. Uh, there are two types of terrestrial crabs that are endemic to this area. There are tons and tons and tons of endemic snails. If you go into an undisturbed cave and you sift through the dirt in the undisturbed cave, I mean, you, they're microscopic snails, but almost every cave has its own endemic species. Wow. So there's an unknown number of endemic snails in the area, but they're, they're almost microscopic. 
And the, the interesting thing is if you go into a, a cave that's disturbed, most of them are gone. So they're, they're very sensitive to disturbance. Wow. Um, I don't think we have any endemic birds. Uh, there's probably some endemic insects, but there's not been a lot of work done on those. Mm. Uh, there are no endemic bats, but there are some rare bats here. We've got 25 or so different species of bats in the area. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. For the mammals, it, they're all pretty small, except the Kapalangar, the Rhesus macaque, and the Sarau. The Sarau is um, like a, I call it like a hillbilly antelope. It's a goat-like animal that is, but it has horns more like a short, small antelope that lives up in the higher areas. Hmm. If I've had Kirin beer, a Japanese beer that's got a thing on it, looks like a weird goat dragon crossbreed on it. That beer, the logo of that is a Sarau. It's a Chilin in that area. What's the name of that beer? And Kirin, K-I-R-I-N. Alright. So, interesting. So, are a lot of those other species facing the same crisis that the Cat by Langer is? Absolutely. Um, so, most of them have a wider range. I mean, things like the Sarau, the Sur that particular species of Sarau ranges from Malaysia up through China over to Japan. But, here on the island, there's only about 20 or so left, at most, probably more like 10, on the island itself, because they've been hunted here on the island. Um, I think we, with the leopard gecko, it's endemic to here, and we just have no idea what the numbers are, because there hasn't been a lot of survey work done on it yet. There's been two or three surveys done of it, and that's it. So there's no real sense yet of what the population of that particular animal is. Um, everything here is hunted. I mean, the, the langur is currently probably the least hunted animal on the island. Everything else is hunted. Wow. And then hunting through the course of the year. Before Tet, which is Vietnamese New Year, there's a spike in hunting. Because people are trying to get things they can sell to get money for Tet. Tet is sort of like the combination of New Year's and Christmas and Easter all kind of jammed together. People are trying to get money together for their families, get food, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. So there's a spike in hunting before that. After Tet, the number of traps we find drops enormously. Uh, coming up soon, they'll start getting the first heavy rains. When we get the heavy rains, there'll be a few days of heavy frog hunting because all the frogs go out and reproduce and everyone goes and catches the frogs to eat. Uh, then during the summer, when the tourists start coming here, we get about 1.7 million tourists a year. 1.1 of them are Vietnamese tourists who come during the summer. And when they come here, the local folks go into the forest and poach all sorts of plants, both ornamental plants and medicinal plants, and sell them to the tourists. So a big, big spike of that during the summer. Goodness. And then towards the end of summer to fall, from basically uh, September, beginning of September until about November, the birds are flying from the northern areas, migrating back across here, going south. And the local folks will set up nets and catch all the birds as well, which is also illegal, but people are doing that. So we have these kind of different peaks through the year of poaching of different kinds of things. Right. Yeah, you've got to be aware throughout all the time, you know, throughout the whole year, yeah. Yeah. each different species. But even yeah. with all that, you guys have managed to increase the po population of the cat by Langer, at yeah. least. Um, yeah. From you... we, we look like we're we've had a pretty good effect on the amount of hunting. It seems that it's been it's been doing a lot of variation back and forth, but in certain areas we've gotten it to drop a lot. Um, it, there is, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. There's a lot of variation in what's going on, so it's an ongoing fight. Sometimes you have a, a big success, and then something changes, and it gets reversed again. Yeah, like you're losing a whole, you know, population group yeah. because of... Yeah. Because, I mean, these are 
from my understanding, there not only are there very few, but they're scattered. There's there's pockets of little populations in this area and this area of there's this couple. There's three subpopulations. So there's three subpopulations on the island. They're too far away from each other for animals to migrate between. Mm. And two of those subpopulations are reproducing populations. The thing of the a of the female population as a separate one is no longer valid. Back in 2014, a male joined that group. But those animals are really, really old, and there's been no reproduction. They've been mating, but no no reproduction at all. So really only have two subpopulations. And you have to keep in mind, when I say 63 animals, that's including old animals, young animals, and bachelor male groups. So if you break that down to the number of reproducing adults, then you're looking at a population of... 32 or so, 33, something like that. Hmm. So, and this is what, so it's an interesting thing, which kind of goes back to a question you asked earlier. We're talking about, uh, before the interview, we're talking about um, uh, things like the 25 most endangered species list yeah. and how, how IUCN makes the, designates whether something is endangered or critically endangered or what, what it may be. So there's several different criteria that are followed with that. You can look at the area something is in, and if it's in a sm really small area, that is one of the one of the criteria used to designate whether it's endangered, critically endangered, what have you. Mm. You can look at the change in population over time. So you can have an animal that has a very large total population, but population is dropping very, very quickly. And yes. if it's dropping fast enough, even if it's a very large population, <laughs> it will be critically endangered or endangered depending on where it falls in that. Uh, you also will look oftentimes not at the total population, but at the reproducing adults in that population and use that as the population count instead of the total number of animals because the reproducing adults is really the key piece right. of all of that. Um, yeah, there, there, and there's a few other criteria used as well. Uh, the, on the IUCN Red List page, if you delve into that a bit, they actually have a, a whole page of how that gets broken down in different criteria and what you look at to make those assessments and judgments. Interesting. Do you guys do any, and I want to chat about that. Uh, I definitely want to chat about that later uh, because that red list seems to be a whole can of worms by itself. You know, it hasn't it even is. been updated in the past 11 years. Well, um, so some things have been, some things have not been. Okay. They've got different, they've got different bodies of people who do the assessments and many of the assessments are done by outside bodies. So the Southeast Asian primates, there was, we did an assessment a while back and all of us working on them, submitted our data into the assessment group. And then the assessment group submitted that to IUCN to the red list. And somewhere along the way, it stalled out. And I haven't been able to find out what happened with it. I've talked to a lot of folks at IUCN that I work with, and that's not really their division. And they go, we don't really know. I've talked to folks at IPS, and they say, yeah, this is an issue, and we're trying to deal with it, but we don't really know where to go with it right now. So, so what, it, what was the, the hang-up? I'm not really... No, exactly. That's, oh. that's the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Or what the question is, everyone says, oh, we submitted the information to them. And they say, well, you didn't come in in the right format. We didn't get it in the right way. So uh -huh. it's understanding oh where that connection is, yeah. what happened there. Because I, I did read that, you know, I knew f since we first started chatting a couple months ago that, that the uh, Katmai Langers were the second most endangered primates. And I yeah. spawned, okay, well, what's the first? You know, I was just curious. I couldn't find yeah. it. So I had to reach out to you and you had to, you know, you had to help me. Uh, but yeah, there were so many different, um, you know, conflicting resources and, and really I couldn't find anything that really seemed to yeah. shoot it straight, which is yeah, and it's a, Yeah, and it's, it, one of the other things to keep in mind is that it will change a lot too very rapidly 
because increasingly genetic analysis is being used to determine species. For example, in Indonesia, there's a discovery of a new species of orangutan. Well, yes and no. It, that was People already knew that orangutan was there. They knew the population was there. What was discovered was through genetic analysis, it, that indicated that it was should be considered a separate species or possibly a subspecies, depending on how you look at okay, it. Yeah. So it wasn't that it was a new species discovered. It was that new analysis techniques revealed more information about an animal that we already knew was there, the population that we already knew was there. Gotcha. So what winds up happening oftentimes is you'll have a group of lemurs or something, or you have different, whatever it might be, plants someplace or butterflies or something, and someone says, oh, let's do some more work on this. And they go, oh, actually, this is not one species. This is actually two or three different species. So all of a sudden, you might have one, say, one endangered species get split up into three different critically endangered species. Uh, so you have a lot of fluctuation like that back and forth. And there's a, one of the common questions people get, or people get asked all the time is, with cases like that, well, if they can reproduce together, does not, doesn't that make them a single species, which right. is kind of the old definition of species? And it doesn't really, because a lot of animals can reproduce and even produce viable offspring. It's, there's a bit more to it. The, the, the definition of species is really fluid and difficult at times. A good example of this is what's called a ring species. Do you know about ring species? I don't. I sure don't. Okay. So California has the Central Valley. And there's a species of salamander that lives in the foothills surrounding that valley. Now, wherever you go, except for one point, any adjacent pair of salamanders can reproduce with each other of this particular species. But at the southern end of that valley, they can't. They're too different. Because they started off over here, and they moved to the northern part of the valley. I don't know exactly where they started, but it's the northern part of the valley. And they radiated out, staying in their habitat, because it's a ring around the edge of the valley. Wow. They weren't in the middle of and when they rejoin together, those two, if you just looked at that, would be considered two different species. It's like because, a game of telephone. Well, this is, this is what evolution is. How do you, what's the difference between us and a Homo erectus? Yeah. Where do you draw that line? If you go back 100 years, you can reproduce with anybody 100 years ago. And you can go back 100 years from that. And boom, 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 back and back and back and back. And you can keep doing that for 3.5 billion years until you're back to a single-set organism. So where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. It's really you. You can look at a static picture and say this is different from this, but or you can look at a fossil or something and say, well, this is one point in time. But when you have that transition like that, it's much much more difficult. That's fascinating because I never thought of it. Because you know, you definitely think about, hey, can they can they reproduce with each other? Um, yeah. Wow, and, and that happened with the cat Langer, right? Wasn't there? There's a species on the mainland, or a subspecies on the mainland, uh, that often gets confused with this species right here. Well, that's, that's, that's in China. So the funny <laughs> thing is, what's a bit frustrating is that the Ketba Langer is, well, they've been separate to two different species. But the Ketba Langer is Trachypithecus polycephalus. This is the type species. Trachypithecus polycephalus polycephalus originally, when it was still considered a subspecies. And what was in China was called at the time Trachypithecus polycephalus leucocephalus. But because that population is a little bit bigger, people always went, well, the cat Belanger is a subspecies. And technically, it was the other way around, because this is the type of species. But that has been split apart now. So this is Trachypithecus polycephalus, and that's Trachypithecus leucocephalus. And they're in southern China, somewhat near the Vietnamese border. Gotcha. Which, which gets to an interesting thing. One of the questions you 
had brought up earlier on the on your list there was the distribution of langurs in the past. Because mm-hmm. right now they're only found on this island, and there's no record of them anywhere else. It's like eight miles, but right? It's a really small. It's a really it's, small no, area. Yeah. Well, where the langurs are is are really tiny. Langurs in themselves are only total in about six square kilometers. If you actually look at the different habitats and just just the little pieces they're in. Wow. But maybe the island itself is considerably larger. The island itself is 27 kilometers in one axis by about 23 kilometers in the other axis. So it's a, the island itself is decently large. Mm, okay. But the langurs are, are little small subsections of it at this point. The thing is, though, that this has been an island for about 11,000, 12,000 years when the last glaciers melted away and raised the sea level. Before that, this would not have been an island. This would have been a larger complex of forest and rivers and limestone pillars sticking out. So at that point, most likely, this animal was found through this entire limestone area. And then as the sea level rose, that area got smaller and smaller and smaller. So it got confined to this one particular island. Hmm. Being that this is a tropical area and we get heavy rains and high humidity, it's not a very good place to preserve any bones or any sort of fossils and things like that. So bones and things tend to disappear very, very quickly. So there's no real record of them anywhere else. However, given that the Trachopithecus leucocephalus in southern China and this are very, very closely related, at one point in the distant past, 60, 70,000 years ago, maybe a million years ago, don't, we don't really know, mm-hmm. that would have one population, which then, due to wow. whatever environmental circumstances, would have been increasingly isolated until split off and then they speciated away from each other. Wow. And that's so hard to tell because there's, like you said, there's no bone fragments, there's no fossils, there's yeah. really nothing that will well, you can, that. What you can do is genetic analysis. Mm-hmm. So we have samples right now at the German Primate Research Center in Göttingen. The fellow named Christian Roos, who focuses a lot on this, has a lot of work in Vietnam and works a lot of places, and he specializes in genetic analysis of primates. So we have samples from all of the subpopulations in his hands right now. So he's going through the, doing a full genetic workup for them. What that will then do is give us a, a data set that we can use to compare to other language species. And then you can use the uh, mutation rate, because there's this kind of a natural, it's called molecular clock. How, how quickly do mutations occur and change within a, within a lineage? So you can look at that and say, okay, well, we have the Francoise Langer, and we have the, the white-headed Langer in southern China, and this. Now we can use that genetic path, a genetic tree, to say, oh, these separated about this long ago, these separated much further back. So we can construct a, a tree that way, as long as we also have similar data from those other species. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. So to, to get more, to, to get more, you know, the trend is obviously pretty positive. I mean, I would say, you know, from 40 slow. to very, very, very slow, but it is positive. Yeah. <laughs> slow trend line. But, you know, do you guys do any sort of reintroduction of from one group to another or try? Well, and... first of all, we, we have, we've done translocations in the past. The difficulty is catching the animals. And so we had two females in 2012. There were two females on a separate small island. The island had been connected by mangroves in the past, and local fishermen cut down the mangroves, making a path for them to go through in their boats. So it ended up isolating a small group of langurs on this one other island. Fortunately, they were in an area that had a cave that we could actually get to and get in and capture them. So we rigged up a capture technique, managed to capture those two, 
and moved them over to the larger lender group. And after it took them about three months or so, they eventually adjusted and joined the local groups. The issue, though, is that if you're going to try and do that from a reproducing group, you are potentially damaging that reproductive group because you are changing the structure of it, and the, the other groups are really small. And if you take one of the things we have, and it's, uh, there's no data on it really yet, but one of the things we have noticed is that if the groups are too small, there's no babies. There seems to be a, a critical minimum number the group needs to reproduce. So if you take animals away from that, you, then you potentially damage that population and stop the reproduction of that population. Oh, wow. You also would need to move females specifically because most males never get to reproduce. Yeah. It's the females. Well, if you're taking them from a reproductively active group, you have the danger then of capturing a pregnant female. And since you have to tranquilize them to move them, you have a very high chance of losing the baby. Wow. So... Where do you? What do you do? What What is your risk reward aspect there? How do you work through the, this complex thing? I I personally think that at some point we're going to have to try to move the entire subpopulation from one of the areas over and connect and join it up with the larger group we have in a much larger protected area. In part because the smaller subpopulation it doesn't have anywhere else to go. It's surrounded on three sides by water, with a village to the north of it and a very very narrow strip of land separating the village from the water. So there's no place for them to move. And when they're going to take over new territory, it's the females that has to move. The males will go out looking for things, but the males aren't the ones that are having babies. It's the females. So if you want to colonize new territory, you have to have a new family group move over and colonize the territory. Mm. So there isn't enough space for those animals to really move out. So maybe that's in the future. So it's not an immediate concern, but it is something we need to pay attention to and make plans for. But again, the situation becomes, how do you catch them? The technique we used relied on a cave, an actual proper cave to go into. Most of the slipping sites, people call them caves, but not really caves. They're ledges and overhangs, they're protected areas. It's just a matter of the translation from the Vietnamese word to, to English. And most of the slipping sites are up on cliffs. So you can't capture them very easily on that. You can't do what you do with places like the Serengeti or tranquilize them because they're up on a cliff. So even if you could shoot them with a tranquilizer dart, they're far enough away that that would be significant damage because they have to go really fast and be a very powerful thing to get up uh, that high. Right. Okay. And then you have the issue of if you're tranquilizing an animal on a cliff, well, where does it go and what happens to it? Does it pass out and fall off and die? Or does it go hide someplace where you can't get to it? Right. What happens now? So there's a lot of significant challenges to overcome if we're going to try doing more moving of the species around, which I think we do need to do at some point. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm sure there's probably, you know, a lot of concern. And if something goes wrong, these are, this is your life right now, yeah. this species of animal. So a lot of yeah. guilt that would be associated with, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys will make the right choice and do it properly. But, you know, it, it's it's probably a bit scary before you do something like that. This is this is one of the reasons why we have things like the technical working group for primates in Vietnam and for the cat langers and things, where it has other organizations involved, because there's a lot of stakeholders. And even if you all disagree on particular things, no one should really be acting, acting entirely, entirely in a unilateral method, manner. You can't be have everything you're doing directed by somebody else who's not on the ground knowing what's happening in the area. But at the same time, when it comes to really risky activities, and also ones that are very expensive, because that, that kind of process is a really expensive thing to do. You need to have the support 
of all the stakeholders involved. So all, they all say, yes, we all think this is a good idea to do this. Right. Otherwise, you have a lot of backlash afterwards, and there's a lot of finger-pointing antagonism and all, things, all sorts of things happening. So you need to have, in situations like that, all of the, both the blame and the credit shared equally. Yeah. Like, it's challenging because people usually want to take the credit and not the blame. But you have to make sure that it's all shared equally around. <laughs> right, yeah, which some people are hesitant to do, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So I recently spoke with, uh, with Craig Sholley, and he's the, I think he's the, the vice president for um, African Wildlife Foundation. And one of the big things he's been helping with the, you know, the mountain gorillas in Uganda and, yeah. and Rwanda and, um, you know, Eastern Africa. So one of the biggest things that he found was incredibly helpful was ecotourism. Um, you know, awareness, uh, getting people to come to the area. You guys seem to have the exact opposite problem, that there's so was, much actually, tourism in that area uh, yeah. that it's affecting so the, everything. I specifically about this, the last IPS conference. We did a presentation specifically on this subject last IPS conference. We had a special section on primate tourism. Um, so I have a presentation about that specifically I can get you a link to. Please, yeah. Um, the... The mountain gorilla and also chimpanzees, for that matter, are oftentimes given as a good example of how you can do primate tourism and things like that. The problem there is that they have control over access. If you want to go see the mountain gorillas in Rwanda or Uganda, you, there's only one group you can go with, and there's only one way you can go in, and no one else can go in. Oh, yeah. Here, we're on an island mm -hmm. with a population of, what, probably 10 million surrounding in the cities around here and all that with a huge number of tourists through it, everyone who's got a boat can go anywhere right. and there's no regulation on the tourism there's no way to control what happens most of the tour companies at least in this area do not have permits to operate they do it by paying their bribes and going on their way and if one person has done something that looks successful everyone copies it you said they don't have permits to operate no no they just, they just pay bribes yeah and the same thing with the hotels a lot of other things like that so there's a yeah. lot of <laughs> illegal activity that takes place that is kind of given a pass because everyone wants to have more tourists to bring more money in. Yeah. There's no concern about quality. There's concern about quantity. Everyone wants more. And the other thing with this also, the mountain gorilla and the chimpanzees are really very specific examples of nature tourism that is actually working really well because they can control access very well. They also have been very good about making sure that the monetary streams are very clear, making sure that there is a limited number of people that can, with their activities, extremely curtailed, and that the local people see a direct benefit from the activities that are going on. Yes. None of that, none of that happens here. And through most of Southeast Asia, that's not the case. Yeah. To do that, you really have to have a strong lockdown on what's going on in the area, and it's not an option. Yeah. This is... Russ Mittermeier is the fellow who's really kind of the key person pushing the primate tourism. And when we've talked about this, even he says, you know, Southeast Asia is one of these really difficult places. It has some of the greatest biodiversity in terms of primates, but the, the way that that activity is done, tourism programs is done, is always very cringeworthy because there's a lot of direct contact with the animals. There's a lot of kind of lack of appreciation for the fact that these are wild animals. They are not pets. They're not toys. They're not anything else. You keep a distance. They're the, and also the, the people that come to areas have certain expectations. So you need to help manage those expectations. Yeah. Western, 
speaking very broadly, and this is very broadly, Westerners tend to have a greater appreciation for nature as nature. That you go to it and you enjoy that particular thing. You, the, what, the purpose you're going to it is for the enjoyment of itself. A lot of folks in this part of the world are much more interested in what you can get out of it. There's an expectation that if I'm going to go to a park, I should see animals. And if I see an animal, I should be able to pet it or feed it or do something like that. Hmm. And that really changes the both the nature of the expectations people have going to an area. And because the tour operators and the parks, for that matter, are catering to the expectations of guests, they will then make those things happen. So I can, so you, yeah. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I can speak yeah, yeah. directly towards that. I lived in Thailand for a bit and I traveled around in the area and um, you would see drugged lions in the street, or, you know, excuse me, tigers in the street with people walking around or even monkeys that would be a little bit drugged and a little bit off or, or elephants and, and a lot of these tours um, these mm-hmm. ecotourism tours, you know, I got suckered into two of them were, weren't really ecotourism. It was a lot of riding elephants and kind of harming the elephants. And one, there's, you know, one group, um, elephant conservation group, uh, in Chiang Mai that I can speak towards that I've actually forgotten the name of. But other than that, it was a lot of, yep. you know, hands on kind of petting things and, um, yep. and not the same as, you know, uh, just going out and, and hoping to and find it- something. And the thing is, it happens to wild animals, too. It's not just animals kept in these kind of rescue centers and preserves. Right. A lot of areas will go out to wild animal, wild areas. This is Indonesia a lot with the orangutans and the gibbons. And people will provision them specifically to bring the wild animals in. And then they'll start giving them water and trying to hand them things directly and stuff like that, which then means that you have the human primate to non-human primate potential disease transfer. You change the... The activity of the area, uh, you see a lot of violence within the primates in those areas. There's a uh, lot more, yeah. there's no, not, less competition for food. You have more impact in the area, and sometimes they're not really group living animals. There's a huge range of documentation about primate tourism indicating, and not just primate tourism, nature tourism in general, indicating that on the whole, and despite a few individual cases where there's been good successes, on the whole, it has not given the the benefits everyone thought it was going to, and it does not work quite as well as people thought it was. And yeah. there's a whole bunch of documentation on this. There's a saying we have that the eco in ecotourism is not ecology; it's economics. Mm. It's ecotourism in that it's tourism. It's always tourism to make money, no matter how you do it. But the focus in most places on that eco is economic because they're looking to make money however they can. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's... but. but the difficulty is when you start greenwashing and saying this is an eco resort, this is a eco tour thing, and it's not. Sure. It, so people are using that term just as a way of attracting more people and more clients. Yeah, and we are. Um, so I got married in October, and, and our honeymoon is going to see the um, the gorillas in Uganda, and that was something yeah. we were very we we researched for a while, and we were very proud of that decision because of that reason, because it's one of the, you know, it's very successful, but it's also, they don't, they don't mess around. You're there to see the gorillas. When you see them, you see them for an hour and that's it. You don't get close. You yep. don't touch them. Um, you know, they give up permits. Permits are very expensive yep. and it goes back, uh, you know, to the community. They give up permits. They run out with them six months in advance. I mean, they're not playing around and, yep. and that's the way I want it to yep. be. And that's the way it should be. Is there any way that that would transfer to, 
you know, Southeast Asia and Vietnam in, in specific, or is that you, require so, so much all, change? In the case, it requires a huge amount of change. So in those areas you're talking about, they're relatively small countries. Mm -hmm. The government has made a decision that that is a special resource and needs to be managed very, very carefully. And the government has made policies that people must follow. Right. To you have to have a similar thing here. These are, these are, I mean, Vietnam is the size of California with 91 million people. Vietnam has more people than Australia and Canada combined. Wow. Yeah. It has almost, has actually more than twice as many people as those two, those two countries combined. I mean, it's, the population density here is greater than population density of China. Mind you, China has a big empty area in the western portion. Mm -hmm. But we always think of China as being this big, dense area. Well, yes, there's a lot of people, but they actually are distributed more than you think they are. Huge area. That, that pattern is repeated all over the place through Southeast Asia. So, and there's a lot of, uh, well, even in Thailand, you know, the, the government level of corruption and things uh, like that. Yeah, so it's really difficult to make certain things happen and have laws and policies put in place that are actually enforced. Yeah. Well, are you, um, I mean, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful about the trends and the, the positive trends in general? I mean, this could definitely be, it could seem frustrating. You know, I read about the massive amounts of pollution created by tourists and by, you know, locals, I'm sure to a lesser extent, but are you, you know, do you see this continuing in a positive trend? I do. It's, I mean, it's a slow, it's a slow process. But it's one of those things where things go really slowly, and then all of a sudden you get really big jumps. Like, um, well before I got here, back in 2006, we managed to get the park expanded by quite a bit to include other areas for protection. Oh. And that was a, a big, abrupt jump that took place over the course of basically a year or two. Um, if this area does become a World Heritage Site, and there's a lot of discussion and debate about that. Oh, wow, it'd be great. Well, yes and no, depends on how it goes on there. But what that would potentially do is rewrite some of the borders in the area and then potentially allow for a bit more influence over how to do protection in the area. Hmm. The, the issue with World Heritage Sites is that the, there is, there's, a, there's no real governing body. There's an administrative body that assesses them. And the only real threat they have is to say, we'll take your status away. But no one wants to have that happen because it, you look really bad. It's a huge loss to face if you have your status taken away. Mm. So this is one of the reasons why there are certain areas where World Heritage Sites are not being managed very well locally, but they're still World Heritage Sites, is because the organi organizing bodies that actually give, the, give that assessment certification out, the way of thinking is, well, if we take the status away, then we have no influence at all. But if we... Let them continue the status so we can lean on them and push and push and push ah. with that taking it away. Wow. Interesting. So it, it, a lot of weird little politics involved in that sort of a thing as well. And again, this is all about people in politics. <laughs> yeah, that's almost like some gangsters, you know, tactics right there. Of giving something and then threatening to take it away or, you know, removing well, protection. Well, remember, they're not giving it. But people have to apply for it. So the... UNESCO or anything doesn't come in and say, we think this should be a World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. People locally have to say, we want this to be a World Heritage Site. We are going to put the documentation together, and we are going to submit the documentation to you, and you will, we, we want your inspectors to come out and assess this area to see if, it's a world, if it is worthy of being a World Heritage Site. Gotcha. So, it's not, so the outside body will, will make the assessment, but the request has to come from local people, local, local governments, local organizing bodies. 
and it's supposed to take place with the with those areas already being protected by local laws because the world heritage status by itself is not actually a protective status within any country unless the country decides it's going to be so to be a world heritage site for these particular reasons anyway the ecological reasons the country itself already has to have those areas protected to whatever degree they're, they're going to be protected interesting interesting um so in addition to your work in vietnam you've done You've also helped to track bears in Ecuador. Uh, you've helped yeah. build a jungle research station in Peru. Uh, you've done some stuff in uh, Virginia, my home state, uh, and some, you know, in Vermont as well. Yeah. Is there one theme that you found uh, in your conservation efforts that applies to all of your work? Is there one kind of tactic or, you know, strategy that you've used that can blanket well, all it of them? I've been doing different things in different areas. So the work in Virginia, for example, was during grad school, and that was uh helping to develop a monitoring protocol for rare species found in Shenandoah National Park. Gotcha. And these are species that are found in very particular environments at the very southern end of their range and are then potentially uh, good indicators of climate change because they're the ones that will be affected first. So you can use as an indicator species. And I was trying to develop a system that was easy and cheap and didn't require fancy equipment and that you could mine for other kinds of data as well. Um, the other side, so that was kind of a separate thing in a way. Um, the work in Ecuador is similar to this kind of work. It was tracking the Andean spectacle bears. We're looking to, trying to get a better sense of the land use um, patterns of the bears compared to humans, and then seeing where the interactions and conflicts were so they could find out ways of meeting the habitat needs of the bears and also the landscape uses of people. Uh, I think that for me, probably the most important piece of all of this is that you always must include the people. Yeah. Everywhere on the planet, other than Antarctica, people have been living there for a very, very long time. Yeah. And in most cases, the damage and problems that we have are in the last couple of hundred years, kind of industrial revolution forward with a massive increase in population and kind of... It, ease of extracting and moving resources around and things like that. If you do what we've been doing in conservation for a long time, which is to do this kind of buy, isolate, protect, kick everyone out model, yeah. I think we're, we're missing a really important piece, or several important pieces. Um, there's a, if you take that buy, protect, isolate model, one of the assumptions that's built into that is that you're preserving a static piece of the environment. And the environment is not static. It is always developing and evolving and moving. So we need to be looking at protecting the ability of the environment to adapt and react to change. And so biodiversity is so important because biodiversity is the resource that the environment as a whole uses to speciate, to move around, to adapt to change, to do all these things. So it's kind of like having biodiversity. It's kind of like having money in the bank. It's gotcha. a tool that that it can be used in this longer term, bigger picture environmental sense, um, in the evolutionary sense. The other thing that's being left out when you take this by isolate protect thing is that for people living in the area in the past, they had a certain investment into those areas. They had a reason to help protect them because they were using those areas. They didn't want someone else from a different village coming in and taking those things that they were valuable to them. If you kick everyone out, Nobody has a reason to protect it anymore. So everyone comes in and takes everything they can. Uh -huh. 
point. So if, if you do things like community-based natural resources management, and there's a bunch of different approaches to that, one of the goals there is that you help give some of that authority over the area back to the local people. And you merge the local people's knowledge and the traditional ways of doing things with more modern knowledge and a greater understanding of things like biodiversity and conservation and ecology mm. and find a middle ground somewhere in there. Allowing people to use a bit of the resources is perfectly fine as long as there is not too much, not an overuse. And finding that balance is really, really tricky and difficult. In some cases, you may have to say, with this species or this particular environment, it's way too sensitive. Other times you can say, hi, you know, if we tweak this and change this a little bit, then we get rid of the cows and the goats and protect this upper, upper watershed area, then antelope will come back. And then we can take a certain number of antelope and you can get the meat from hunting the wild animals in small numbers, as opposed to having a bunch of other animals that you're eating that are destroying the environment and not allowing the biodiversity there. I mean, it's sort of like the, the wolves in Yellowstone type of thing where it brought wolves back. And when you're bringing pyodrides back, it's going to ruin everything. Well, it helped restore streams because the wolves were hunting deer that were over other in elk and things, in other words, overgrazing areas. But the wolves have now kept animals away from certain places. And that allowed those areas to recover. So it, it's a very complicated picture. And we need to be paying much more attention to the complexity and to the role of humans in nature because we are not separate from nature. We are part of it. Sitting in an office in the middle of New York City, you're just as much part of nature as someone out in the forest is. Because everything we use, whether it's a computer or whether it's a, you know, a stick you're using to go dig dupers up, it's all coming from nature. Yeah. And we need to be paying attention to that. So I think from my own personal side, that human interaction and the role of humans with the, kind of the human-wild nature interface is the, the ongoing theme for me. It's also, you don't, you don't want to shame people. It's, it's not only how do you include people or to include people, how do you include them? You want to make sure they feel like they're yeah. a part of the solution. You don't want to shame them. You want to educate them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it's different. It's a balancing act. It's different in different areas, too. Like, for example, where I was working in Indonesia, um, the local people were doing some hunting, but doing a lot of deforesting. And the deforestation was bad because it also reduced the habitat for orangutans and gibbons and things like this. So when they went in, they asked, you know, why are you cutting down the trees? Why are you doing this deforestation? And I said, well, we need the money. Well, what are you using the money for? It turned out they're using the money for fertilizers and healthcare. So in that case, it wasn't about the money. It was about what you could do with the money. And I think that's an important distinction people miss sometimes, that giving money to – throwing money at a problem is not necessarily a way to fix it. If you know what people are – considering important, what they're using those resources for, they're using the money for what, what's going on, then you can meet those needs instead and cut out that middle process. And also, if you do it appropriately, you can find ways of kind of helping the communities become more self-sustaining and not reliant so much on other external things. You know, if you can help people produce their own fertilizer through manure programs and things like that, then you potentially eliminate the need for them to go get money and go somewhere else to get whatever the resource is. Right. The thing is that what works in one area is not always going to work in a different area because there's different concerns and different needs. So you've got to be very um, diligent in your approach to local people and listen to yeah. them. You can't come in and say, we know better. You have to go and say, what's going on? Can you tell me about your area? Tell me about yourself. What's happening in the area? Yeah.
you know, what are your concerns? What, what is it important to you? It's just surprising how many organizations don't do that. And that seems to be what sets apart the successful ones from the unsuccessful ones. I think there's an increasing trend to do that, but it's a, it's a slow process. Yeah, exactly. So how can people uh, help the Katla-Lango Conservation Project? Yeah, so here's, i say two things with that. Um, obviously, we welcome any support we can get. Uh, the easiest thing that we can use best is equipment and finances. Um, you can check our Facebook page out, look at stuff like that, talk to our sponsors in Germany as well, and... Uh, email us, whatever, we can kind of work things out with that. Um, those are always the most useful things. Spreading awareness is always a good idea, too. That always is very helpful. But what I'd like to remind people is that it's very easy to sit at home and say, we want to help something over there in Southeast Asia or in East Africa or in the Andes in Northern South America. Because there's a certain level of distance. It's not very personal. But all over the world, there's a lot that needs to be done right at home. And a lot of that can be done even from a backyard. And just start thinking about your ornamental plants, using native plants instead, because native plants then host native insects, which are the native birds and things eat. And that helps to keep a lot of the, the damage that we're doing greater in the environment, lessened and mitigated. And you, you bring nature into you and bring it to yourself and become a greater part of that. Uh, working with any sort of local organizations that are working on local conservation things or dealing with invasive species or dealing with protecting particular areas or getting involved in citizen science projects that help uh, learn more about the biodiversity of an area and then use that to figure out longer-term policies and plans to manage the resources of an area. I would encourage everyone to get involved in those things and really get involved locally, pay close attention locally. And, of course, that also goes into voting and being active politically as well. You, you, we really need to be paying much, much closer attention to who it is making policy decisions and making law decisions because that is really what dictates the longer-term future and cycle is the, the national-level policies, what corporations and companies are allowed to do because that's where actually most of the damage comes from, these really large organizations, and how we, as a population, manage ourselves and our environment. So yes, we always welcome any support we can get from anywhere in the world. But remember that it's not always the places far away that need help. It's the places right around you that also need help as well. I love it. I love it. I think that's uh, you know powerful advice for anyone anywhere. Um, yeah, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, you've, I've learned so much just now. Um, you know, just about the cat by Langer, but also about conservation in general and, and primates and, uh, you know, everything we chatted about. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for talking with me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So I really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else you do in the future as well. It seems like you have some interesting things lined up. And I'm always happy to talk with people like you who are really engaged and want to share information and get other people interested and excited. So thank you very much for having me on. and. For doing what you're doing as well absolutely yeah i appreciate that and um yes i'm sure we'll be in touch uh this is a fascinating project and uh you know i want to follow it for as long as it goes so thanks again Niag. i really appreciate it my pleasure take care all right you too thanks for joining if you like that episode feel free to rate view and subscribe that actually really helps if you haven't seen it yet 
take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.